Uh, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to pound through this whole chapter. If y'all, don't, if y'all bear with me. Uh, some of our readings are a little bit longer, but I want y'all to get the breadth and the scope of what we're looking at in these passages and so that um, you guys really kind of get what's going on, what he's saying throughout these, um, these times or whatever. So, um, so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. So hear the word of God. For everything, there is a season and a time. There's a season, excuse me, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up which was planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain. From embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that every man should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous And the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. And they have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we uh, thank you for your word. And I, I trust that many here, most here, hopefully, all here, didn't come to hear Russell talk hear my opinions they came to hear from you lord and so that's what we ask that you would speak through your word speak through this broken vessel this morning we pray this in the name of jesus amen so we're talking about wake up call and the book of ecclesiastes is one of the toughest books in the bible Uh, it's one of the most misunderstood books in the bible many matter of fact wonder if it should be in the bible at all so if you're depressed and you're having a hard day a hard time 
you might not want to go to the book of Ecclesiastes because it's kind of depressing. You want to give Solomon a hug because it's, you know, he's struggling, it seems like. All of life is vanity. It's just a vapor. But what we see is that he's not just depressed. He's not having a hard day. He's, he has gone on an experiment. He has made himself an experiment. He's taken himself through life to see what life can offer, see what meaning can be gathered from life under the sun, as he says, over 30 times in the book. What does life look like under sun? What meaning can there be? And we saw the first wake-up call, uh, the first week was, life is a vapor. Life is vanity. All of life is vanity. And so we should live accordingly. This life is like a, a puff of smoke, a little vapor. And the more we try to grab it and hang on to it, the quicker it goes away. And so we should live our lives realizing that it's short and it's going to go away quickly. And last week, we saw that your life pursuits are pointless. Remember that one? This is really encouraging stuff. These are harsh wake-up Harsh wake up. Your, your life is pointless. The pursuits of your life don't mean anything outside of Jesus. However, in Christ, our labor is not in vain. All right, we got another wake-up call. But wake-up calls aren't fun, are they? Nobody likes a wake-up call. Um, yesterday morning, I got a, a wake-up call a lot earlier than I expected. My kids were up fighting over a game. At, you know, I don't know what time. Way before they, like, they won't get up on, on a weekday. But a Saturday, they're up. Wake up call for me. You know, it was awesome. I love that. It was great to get woken up, you know, to kids fighting. That's the best ever. You know, but we try to, you know, but even if you try to make a wake up call nice, it's still rough. And we saw some rough uh, wake up calls, the videos last week. The best one was the guy was driving in the car behind the, the truck, the, the semi being towed, and he Screamed, woke up his wife, said, we're running into the truck. And she thought they were running into the truck. It was great. Um, we got a wake-up call this morning. But this is a challenge wake-up call for you guys. Try not to laugh at this. Go ahead. We need audio for sure. How would you like to wake up to that every morning, right? Yeah, that would be an interesting, but that makes me laugh. I, I can't help but because it sounds like the thing is cracking up. The thing's got a broken uh, rooster call, whatever they call that or whatever. Um, Wake-up calls are not always pleasant. Sometimes they're very rough. Sometimes, most of the time, they're harsh. And we've said, we've defined a wake-up call, though, as a person or thing, maybe an event that causes people to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and to take care to action, take action to remedy it. In other words, a wake-up call it can be when you woke up in, in, in the morning, it's time to get up. But sometimes it's when you, something's going on in your life, you're living a certain way or something is happening and, and something or somebody does something and it, and it causes you to be alert to what's going on. And, and the Ecclesiastes, he's writing this book 
in order to give us wake-up calls. He's trying to tell us, listen, I'm at the end of my life. I have tried all this. I've done all this. Like last week we saw, he, he pursued wisdom. He pursued folly. He pursued partying. He pursued pleasure. He pursued sex. He pursued work and success and wealth. He, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He tried it all and found that it was all pointless in the end because you die, and if you've earned it all, you leave it to somebody Pleasure always runs out. You always need a little more. And he goes down the list and, re- and points out that, the, that your pursuits in this life, you're trying to find happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, and genuine meaning in this life, you're going to lose. And so it's a wake-up call. And so we got another wake-up call this morning. The wake-up call this morning is God is sovereign and you are not. Say that again. God is sovereign. In other words, let me define that. God is in control of all things. He's the ruler of all things, and he controls all things, and you don't. Now, for some of us, um, the idea that God is in control of all things is, uh, is a tough idea. For some of us, it is a rough idea. It is like, oh, the idea that God could be in control of all things. And that proposes a lot of issues for some people. I would guess that most people here, you know, us in the Reformed faith, we pride ourselves in this idea that God is sovereign. And it's like the, one of the pillars of Reformed faith, that God is the sovereign. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to say here this morning, though, even for us, there's a wake-up call for us this morning. Because even though we might theologically, intellectually, philosophically say that God is in charge of all things, we don't always live that way. And we don't always live in light of it. And so um, this wake-up call is for both of us. Those of us who struggle with the fact that God's in control at all, and those of us who just have it in our head as like some cool idea. All right? And so um, this morning, I want to see here in chapter 3, Solomon gives us two realities. Two realities in our life that, that for our lives, and how God can both challenge that can for our lives that, and about God that can both challenge and comfort us in our lives. Okay, so let's look at these. First of all, life moves beyond our control, but God orders things precisely. Let's say that again. God moves beyond our control, but orders things precisely. Let's look at verses one through eight, if you would. He says. But, the, for, you know, and this is such a cute song. You all know the song? But the birds, for every turn, turn, turn. Come on, y'all know the song by the birds. Y'all don't know the folk song by the birds? I thought that was famous. Yeah, this is all cute, right? So here we go. For everything there's a season, a time for a matter of, under the sun, time to be born, time to die, time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And you can see Solomon here is giving this, this is beautiful poetry here, and it's very rhythmic, and that's the point. He's trying to show there's this beautiful rhythm, this, this, this rhythm and uh, points to this ryth- rhythms of life or whatever. And it has been a really famous folk song. And as a matter of fact, this, this is a passage that's often quoted as well in funerals. 
I actually heard it quoted in, at a funeral that, of a person who didn't even believe God. They, they, because it's just, you know, kind of talking about the cycle of life and it's a time to be born, a time to die. It just sounds really nice and quaint or whatever. And that's, the, you know, um, however... What Solomon's doing here, he's not trying to be cute. He's not trying to be quaint. He's trying to sh- say that life kind of rolls along, rumbles along. These rhythms kind of rumble and roll through our lives. One guy put it this way. These, these, uh, we find these rhythms happening to us without our awareness what is really going on. And the very fact that life keeps changing leaves us with no lasting success or feeling of that deep satisfaction. So if you can imagine, if you've ever been in this ocean, in the, in the surface pretty rough, have you ever been in the ocean? And, you know, the waves just keep coming. And if you get knocked down, I remember when I was a kid, we, we lived in Sarasota, and there was this one beach that had, like, really rough surf. And I remember one time, a big wave took me out and, like, put me under the water. And before I could get up, another one hit, and then another, and then another. And, 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 and here's the thing about the waves in the ocean. I think it's a really good picture. It's kind of what you see him doing here is these waves. And you can look at the ocean, and you can see the waves. You can see them moving, but you, you, and you can even see that there is a rhythm. And if you've ever been on a boat or a cruise, which I won't do because I, I don't like getting seasick, but you, you, know, you feel the waves, and your body feels them whether you know it or not, and that's how you get seasick, right? So, but you can see it. You see it's happening. You see that these rhythms exist. Nobody looks at this list and says, nah, that's not true. Nobody does that. Nobody looks at this list and says, meh, nah, that didn't really go like that. No, we, everybody says, I mean, I don't care whether you believe the Bible or not. You look at this list and say, yeah, that's pretty accurate. People are born, they die. There's all, you know, these things happen. The problem is there's no discernible pattern. There's no discernible sense of, Oh, that's why this happens this way. And so it leaves us kind of empty. It leaves us kind of wondering what's going on in life. Let's put it this way. And, and you know, look, think about the rhythms of life. We, we pursue half of this list. We like half of this list. We like the idea we were born most of the time. You know, we seek to, to plant and to produce in our lives. We seek happy times. We seek love. We seek all these things, but there's the other side of this list. So we pursue those things, but the others just seem to happen. And that's where we get left. So, for example, somebody, uh, we knew somebody who um, they found like a, a little weird bump on their side. And, you know, just kind of randomly, just like, oh, what's that? And they went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, oh, this is so good. Such a good thing that you found that and came in early. Because that was precancerous, and you, that could have really been a horrible thing. And we think, oh, that's great. Wow. Such, that was a really positive thing, right? But how many other stories do we know of? The person who failed to notice it, and then they go to the doctor, and they say, if only you had come in, you know, a year before. Follow what I'm saying? And we say that in many areas of our lives. We see good things happen to some people, and we see bad things happen to people. And sometimes good things happen to good people. We think, yay! Sometimes we see good things happen to bad people, and we say, no. You know, and we see bad things happen to good people, and we think, oh, man, that's a bummer. And then we see bad things happen to bad people, and we laugh. 
We think it's great. And so, what is it? What's the pattern here? What's going on? And, and so, so we, we seek some of these seasons. We fight hard to experience the positive side, but the problem arises when the negative side hits. And Solomon sees this, and he realizes this, and he says, this, he concludes this section, he says, in verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? And this is a theme that he has throughout. In other words, what gain do we have pursuing anything meaningful out of this life? That's what he's saying here. What, what, out of the pursuits of our life, trying to find joy and meaning out of this life, what's the point if, the, if there's just these random rhythms crashing through our lives? And so, but that's not the whole story. Solomon doesn't leave us there, thankfully. There's some places in this book where he kind of leaves us. He says, life is pointless. Life is a vapor. All is vanity of vanities of vanities. And he leaves us there. Now, he doesn't do that. But if you go down to verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also put eternity in man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so he, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's put eternity in our hearts. In other words, God has so wired us as human beings. We know there should be some meaning. We know there's more to the story than what we witness and observe in this life. We, there's something deep within us that knows there's more. Yet we can't. He says we can't. We don't know from the beginning from the end. We don't know. However, he says this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. So in other words, even though this life seems like it's a, ran, a bunch of random rhythms, God has in fact ordered all things to perfection. Now one guy put it this way. If there's any structure in this, talking about this poem here, and these rhythms here, and they try to figure out what's he doing here, is there some kind of overarching struggle? It, lies, it, it likely lies in the fact that the list of opposites are made up of 28 items and 14 pairs, and this means that the list comprised of multiples of seven the number that symbolizes perfection in the Bible. So, like, if you kind of try to figure out what he's doing with these lists, like, what's he trying to do here? You really can't, because there's all, it's just seemingly these random, you know, uh, contrasts. However, there's 28 items in 14 pairs in the pairs of seven, which is the biblical number, which is common number in, in Hebrew thought of being a thought of perfection. So, even though these random rhythms are happening in life, death and life and sorrow and happiness and whatever, in the midst of it, God is making it beautiful in its time. And you see it taken further in verse 14. Follow me down there. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. So it's perfect. Whatever God does is perfect. So in other words, he's saying that God sovereignly orders all things just the way they are. Now, in uh, our circles, we talk about this as God's sovereignty. And, and honestly, that's not the best word to use. Um, think that to be sovereign means that God has the right and the authority to rule all things. It doesn't mean he does. When we talk about God's providence... We talk about how God has ordered 
and orders and, and takes care of every little detail. Everything that happens in this earth happens under the providence of God. Our Westminster Confession puts it this way, that nothing happens, nothing comes to pass that God has not foreordained and does not cause to happen. That God is the orchestrator, the author and orchestrator of everything that happens. And so, let's say that again. God is sovereign in his providence. You are not. We don't have control over it. If anything, this list should point to us is we don't have control. God does. Now, this could put us in a position where we just feel like little pawns in God's little game. We're just little chess pieces on God's little game. And some days he sacrifices some, some days he doesn't. Some days we're a king, some days we are a pawn, right? And we feel, you know, or we could just become totally fatalistic. It reminds me of a, a comic strip. Y'all remember Calvin and Hobbes? Love Calvin Hobbes. Bring up the first part of that. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's, uh, Calvin says, I decided to be a fatalist. All events are preordained and unalterable. Whatever will be, will, will be. That way, if anything bad happens, it's not my fault. It's fate. Okay, keep going. And so Hobbes decides to trip him. Ah! Right? And so, too bad. You were fated to do that. That wasn't fate. He says from the dirt. So we could get to this place, everything's faded, it's, it's all pointless, it doesn't matter what I do, don't do, and everything like that, and we can get to a place of losing hope. Now, and Solomon doesn't want to take us there. Solomon's, there's a practical background, there's a, this is a wisdom literature, we talked about that, and, it, and it's not just philosophizing, he's not a, he's not a modern um, existentialist philosopher, though some would say it sounds a lot like that, he's actually man of God trying to teach God's people wisdom. And so, if life moves beyond our control, and God orders all things precisely, we could potentially lose hope. However, okay, life would lose hope, but God judges all things perfectly. Okay, so second reality I want you all to see. Okay, life would lose hope. We, we could potentially lose hope thinking, if God's in control, either God is not in control, that's one th- potential, and this is just a random chaotic mess, or God's in control, and that's equally bad. That if God's in control, how, what about suffering? What about uh, death? What about injustice? What about all these things in life that happen and seem just to be chaotic mess? If God's in control, why is it like this? Let me tell you how many times I hear that. How could a loving God allow X, Y, or Z? Have you heard that before? I've said that before. I'm a pastor, and I've said that. God, how can you be a loving God and allow this family to suffer the way that they are? And it's real when you know the people, and you know the struggle. And so life would just lose hope. However, what we see in this passage is that God judges all things perfectly. Read with me in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been, and that which is to be, 
already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. And so, Solomon brings together, what he's doing here is, he's bringing together both the big picture of life, the whole of life, and the individual parts, these little seasons. And he's explaining to us how in the lack of control, okay, okay, that there can be hope. In the midst of what seems to be chaos, what seems to be this mess of life, this rolling of waves, some good, some are high, some are low. And, and some of us feel it. <laughs> like, sometimes it's daily. But there's these seasons in our life, and they roll through. And he's saying, listen, there's hope. There is hope. Why? What's the hope? The hope is that God is the judge. Like, wait a minute. I don't like that idea. Like, most of us think, wait a minute. That's the part, like, that's that Old Testament stuff we try to forget about. You know, that God's like the judge. He sits on the throne. And, you know, and one day, we usually think about it negatively in that way. That if we do bad things or bad people do bad things, that one day God is going to strike them down. You know, I've even had people, you know, I love it because, you know, I'll do weddings or whatever, and people will be coming to the church, and, you know, it'll inevitably be people that aren't Christians, and they'll say a cuss word or two in the sanctuary, and they'll be like, God's not going to strike me out, is he? And it's this idea that God is like that, and, and, and that may be, that is true. God is judge, and he does judge wickedness. We see that in this passage, but there's more to this idea Solomon is proclaiming here that God is, in fact, going to judge everything that happens in this life. Notice it says he judges the wicked and he judges the righteous. In other words, and it's really sometimes, okay, so, but here's the thing. Because God judges everything, okay, everything is accounted for. And if everything is accounted for in God's mind and in God's presence, everything matters. That makes sense? You account for things that matter. Every moment in this life will be accounted for. It won't be lost. Okay? So in other words, if God accounts for everything, it gives my present actions meaning and weight, and it gives my experience losses and injustice a voice in God's presence. So everything that happens will be accounted for in the presence of God. And that should give us hope. Why? Okay. First of all, we can trust that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Okay. So we can can trust that God is using the mess and the chaos and the rhythms of this life. And he's making them beautiful. But here's the thing. In their own time. That's the hard part we struggle with, right? Well, I want God to make things beautiful now. I want God to rectify that situation now. I want God to have justice now. I want God, I want, I want equality. I want um, uh, wealth and success and health and, and vitality now. But God is making them beautiful in their time. 
And then whatever he does, we, this is another promise, endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and can take it away from it. So the, we can trust that the things happening in this life stand under the judgment of God who is making all things beautiful, enduring, where nothing can be added, nothing can be taken away. Every moment of this life matters. So in other words, it means that we can rest when things are good. What do you mean, Russell? You ever, you ever like, when things are going really well, don't you have that little nagging anxiety? Like, oh no, what if it goes bad? <laughs> you can't even really enjoy a good time sometimes. Like, th- things are going good, well in your life, there's this nagging sense, because it's probably true, that it's not going to last. Right? I can't tell you. I go on a vacation, I can't really enjoy it because it's going to end. <laughs> you know, it's like you think, ah, uh, you know, I can't really enjoy it. And that's the idea. But here's the thing, knowing that God is making all things beautiful, everything happening is under his judgment, we can rest in the good times. Now, it also means we can endure and learn from the bad seasons, knowing that God is somehow using them for good. Now, here's a part of this passage here that's really cool. And you may not, when, you, when we read it, we might have missed it. It's a phrase, super important. If you notice in verse 14 and 15, it says, God, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away. God has done it so people will fear him. Here it is. That which is, verse 15, has already been. That which is to be has already been. Now, there's the phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. It's saying here. Saying that God, one day, when, when events seemingly have passed and gone, gone away, been driven away by time, God is going to seek those events God is going to seek every moment that has happened in this universe. He's going to reclaim them and make them beautiful. We talk about time travel. We love the idea of time travel. You know, like movies and, and like my, one of my favorite movies is the, is the Back to the Future series, right? And the thought that I, what if I could go back in time? Have you ever thought about that? Like what if I could go back to that moment and change that decision? Make that right. Let me tell you, right here in verse 14, 15, excuse me, God's time travel. God is going to go back in time and make it all right. How is he going to do that? I don't know. I have no idea. But God is going to reclaim. He's going to seek out that which has been driven away. God is going to make, take all these rhythms, all these ups and downs. He's going to make them beautiful. And that, my friends, is, that is hope. But the problem is, we're in it. The problem, we, eternity's in our heart, but we don't get it. We don't know the beginning from the end. And it's like, for example, our children. When I, when, when, maybe even when we were kids. When I discipline my children, they struggle with that. (laughs) When I make my kids eat vegetables that they don't like, they struggle with that. When I make them dress like they're not homeless, they struggle with that. When I force them out the door to go to school on a cold morning, they struggle with that. Why? They don't see the big picture. Are you with me? 
they don't understand that I'm that these things that are happening to them, they have to take a bath. You think it's um, you know boiling oil? It's just water and some soap. You put them in there, they don't get it. It's like my little dog too. I, I always wonder, like my little Frenchy French bulldog. Should enjoy a bath. It's warm. I, I rub and scrub all over. He doesn't get it. He does not understand why I would stick him in this scary white bowl, pour water on him, and start messing with him. He does not get the point. He doesn't see the picture. And that's the, that's the thing is, we understand there should be some meaning to this. There's something got to be happening here, but we don't get it. And when the things are happening, we start to squeal and squirm. We start to pitch a fit. We struggle. We start trying to fight against it and try to make things better and have, you know, all this stuff. And we wear ourselves out. You know, it's like my kids. It's like, if I talk, you know, like our, our youngest, Watts. It's like homework. He's, he spends so much energy fighting doing like this one little math paper and try to explain him listen if you would just stop complaining and crying and whining about it you'd be done instead it's two hours later and you're still crying and whining and fussing about it but he doesn't see the big picture and that's the problem okay here's the thing here's the wake-up call is that we're not sovereign God is in control, and we are not. And so, part of, a part of wisdom, catch this, please. A huge part of wisdom is becoming small. Becoming small enough in our hearts and minds to realize that we are in control, but somebody is. We don't see the big picture. Somebody does. That is at the heart of wisdom. And there's two ways we, we struggle with this and we reject God's sovereign order. We fight and we kick against it, right? You with me on that? Y'all know that one. We, we fight against it. We try to struggle against it. I'm not talking about we being fatalistic or whatever, okay? But when, when tough times come, we, learn to, we should learn to, to learn from them and so on, okay? Also, this, this is something that really kind of got me in, as I was preparing and studying and, and digging into this is um, we, I think very often we, we struggle to fail. We fail to maximize the season God has put in our life. You hear that? When we fail to live in the season that God has put us in. So let me give you an example. I, I, and I, I got this. I was reading a book. I've been reading a book, and it's uh, this story of, uh, of a couple that met C.S. Lewis. And he led, them, led at least the man to Jesus and so on. And they were talking about their time at college and how they just were just using that time at Oxford to soak in. It made me think about when I was in college. And I remember when I was in college, I was so concerned with what I was going to do after college. I really feel like I missed out. I was so focused on what was next. And I was so intently thinking about what was next on the horizon that I failed to just enjoy the season. I really feel like I missed out friendships, fun, you know, and maybe even learning and experiences that I could have done if I had just said, hey, this is the season I'm in. Let me maximize the season that I'm in. 
whether it's a positive season, maybe it's a negative, harsh, rough season you're in. Don't squander that. God has given you that for a reason. God gives us the suffering and the hard times in our lives for a reason. Don't squander it. Be asking God, what are you teaching me now? How can I learn from this? How can this make me look more like you? So here's the thing. There's, and here's the thing about our lives, guys. When, even when we think things are bad, when we think things are maybe good, we, they're not always the way we think they are, are they? We don't see the big picture. And so it requires us to have faith like a child, to get small. And I, as I was studying reading this, I heard a story. Because I'm, I'm a, we're, we're church plant, I'm a church planter now. And we faced our series of discouragements and, and struggles as a church plant, haven't we? And I read this story and I thought, man, that is amazing. So in, in the early 1900s, a man named uh, Dr. Wesley, William Leslie, excuse me, he went to, on the mission field in, in the Congo, in Africa. Talk about sacrifice. Talk about radical. I mean, he, he went and, and served in the Congo for 17 years. And after 17 years, he left the mission field defeated, discouraged, feeling a total failure. Very little fruit. Very little anything came out of it other than he suffered a lot and worked really hard for a long time. And he returned to the United States and, um, and died um, in a, several, you know, quite a few years later. Well, 84 years later, a team of um, a missionary flight crew went back into the Congo and just were in the area that he had ministered in. And they, had, they didn't know anything about this guy. They've never heard a story about him. He hadn't, wasn't in any books. No preachers had told his story or anything like that. This was in 2011. They went and they were in the right in the same area that he went to. And, and they went to this one little tribe that apparently he had had some contact with. And they went and they, and they had to get there by plane, helicopter, and then boat, and then a long hike. And they got there. And to their astonishment... There was this huge community of Christian believers. And, and they were church planting, multiplying Christian believers. As a matter of fact, there's a, a, what they would call the cathedral. An 800-seat auditorium church that in the, in the 1980s got so overcrowded and people were traveling for so far, they started to plant churches throughout the region. So... William Leslie died believing he had failed. And the seeds he sowed in, the, in those times, those moments, in God's time, became beautiful. That, my friends, is amazing that God can do that in spite of him. God can do that in spite of you. Now, I'm not saying that Everything you touch is going to one day become this amazing thing. But here's the thing. We don't see the picture. We don't see the big picture. We need to trust that God is going to judge all things. And he's going to call every moment back. And it's going to make it beautiful. How do we know? Because he tells us. How do we know? 
because he became a man, lived a perfect life, paid for uh, eternity, paid for all this by his death and by his resurrection, we are told that everything will be reconciled to him, that everything will be made right again. Every moment, every sorrow, every little joy. So the call is, do we trust it? Can we rest in it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these wake-up calls are sometimes harsh. Some, some of us need to just wake up and realize we are not in control. We need to stop, as they used to say, kicking against the goads, kicking against the prods. That we should just rest knowing that you're in control, Lord. Lord, and, and show me what I can affect. Show me what I can change. Show me what I can do. But Lord, if, if, if it can't, Lord, just I trust that whatever happens, whatever you're doing in my life, you're going to make beautiful. And that should give us immense hope in the, in the crashing, tough waves of life. So Lord, help us to realize we are not sovereign, but you are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And this, um, as we come to this table, it, it's a reminder.